Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm on today with Arushi Kumar. Arushi, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. Yes. Uh, so my name is Arushi Kumar. Um, I currently work at uh, Abbey. So I'm doing brand marketing right now at Abbey. Um, and it's a company that I joined about two years ago. So yeah, I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. So Arushi, tell us about your background and how you got to your current role. Perfect. Yeah. So uh, let's start from the very beginning. So I am an IT engineer by education. So I did my software engineering back in uh, 2010. And then I did my MBA in marketing soon after. This was uh, back in India. And then from there on, I got recruited by PwC, which is PricewaterhouseCoopers, uh, into their management consulting business. Uh, And I was with them from 2012 to 2020, so for about eight years. And majority of my work uh, with them was uh, for pharma clients, big and small. So for the first three years, I worked in India. And then for the next five years, uh, starting 2015 end, I moved to the U.S. with PwC. Uh, So that was a great, uh, you know, country transition uh, for me. and uh, so over over the eight years with PwC, I, as I said, I mostly worked with pharma clients, but also a few PE, PE clients, private equity. And uh, most of my work was centered around supply chain consulting, but also commercial consulting. And so, you know, from supply chain standpoint, I've worked across R&D, I've worked in a manufacturing plant, I've worked in a distribution center, um, I've worked a little bit in regulatory, pharma quality, and on the commercial side, I've worked uh, doing forecasting, so a lot of due diligence uh, kind of projects, which was with uh, PE clients. And then um, I've done market assessment, market research, go-to-market strategy, value prop development. <clears throat> and I also worked uh, with J&J Consumer at one point developing their retail go-to-market strategy, and I implemented a pilot for um, their FemCare portfolio products, which is stay-free and carefree brands. So, you know, all in all, I, um, I pride myself <laughs> upon having um, experience across the supply chain. And um, for the last six months at PwC, I wanted to try something different. So I've also actually worked a little bit in the product development arm of PwC, where we were working on a B2B product, a tech product, which was being developed uh, for the regulatory environment to provide information to regulatory stakeholders within uh, pharma um, at their fingertips, right? So it was a very different experience. I worked with engineers, UI, UX folks, etc. So th- that, in in a nutshell, was my experience with PwC. And then, as I was mentioning, in January of 2020, I made my move to the industry, which was the company that I'm currently working at. Uh, it's a big pharma company called as AbbVie. And, um, you know, I was seeking more work-life balance than consulting provides. And I wanted a little bit, I uh, wanted to work a little bit more uh, on the commercial front. And so I decided to use my strength, which was in analytics and consulting, and uh, to move with that skill set into patient analytics at Abby. So I worked for two years there from 2020 through 2022. This was all during COVID as well. And um, there, my job was basically to look at patient level analytics, so patient level claims that come uh, to us, organizing that data, synthesizing it, and coming up with insights. 
I also use that data to come up with uh, forecasting models where we would look at, um, okay, with the incoming patients, what would that translate to in terms of scripts and revenue? And I did a lot of the monthly annual forecasting as well as long range planning and worked a lot with leadership in that role. And the third part of that role was doing brand analytics. So support for any kind of analytics that the brand team or the marketing team wanted to run, which was, um, so for example, if they were doing any competitive claims that they wanted to make and if they wanted us to look at data, that that is something that I supported, as well as uh, segmentation efforts that we did for doctors. And uh, at the same time, what was going on outside of work was I knew that I wanted to make a transition to marketing, but I wanted to also stay current. So I decided to do my second master's in marketing uh, from here at Northwestern University, and I graduated in 2020. And soon after, I uh, took up a role um, in the brand marketing team. Uh, So it's been about seven months now or eight months now that I've been working uh, as part of the brand marketing team. For an indication called AS, which is ankylosing spondylitis, it's basically the arthritis of the spine. So it's a very, very rare disease. Few people are impacted by it, but also our company works um, and develops medicines for these kind of rare diseases. So I work for a product called Mimbook AS, which just launched uh, earlier this year in May. We got an FDA approval for that. Uh, My... uh, what my function or my team does as a whole, and then I can tell you about what my role is there. But the brand marketing team for Invoke AS, what we do is essentially we take inputs from various functions such as analytics, such as market research, competitive intelligence, consumer team, forecasting, and we come up with a marketing strategy for our product. And that the strategy translates into tactics. And then, you know, we launch with those tactics in the market and and basically uh, then tweak strategy as needed. And my audience or our audience is HCPs, which is healthcare practitioners or doctors, uh, not consumers. So the ads that you see on TV are by consumer marketing team, while I work in the HCP marketing team. So we market to doctors. And my role there is I work on the digital ecosystem. So be, my audience being doctors, I look at how how can we market to them uh, to move them from awareness to engagement and ultimately prescribing more more product for our patients that need it uh, using the digital ecosystem. So everything digital, meaning the website for doctors, any emails that need to go to them, uh, search ads, social media ads, display ads, all of that falls under me. And then I also handle the media strategy. So any third-party tactics that we do using media um you know, it could be any media where doctors are present. So which websites are they are they reading on? Where are they present? What journals are they reading? So we need to be present uh, at, on those platforms as well. And that is something that I handle as well. So I, I want to ask about the beginning. Um, your journey to the U.S., did you get a sponsorship? Uh, so PwC, my company at the time, was gracious enough to uh, sponsor me. And, you know, you need a work visa when you when you have to move uh, or you want to move to the U.S. So they were gracious enough to sponsor me. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's what made it possible. <laughs> what do you recommend for people who are trying to get a sponsorship to work in the U.S.? Is there any strategy that you employed? Uh, yeah, so I think within the firm, so for people who are looking to transfer over to the U.S., I think... Uh, 
you know, creating those relationships uh, within the company with your mentors or people, uh, you know, and depending on if your company has uh, an arm in the U.S., maybe creating and building those relationships with the stakeholders that can uh, look at your work, the quality of your work, and maybe, you know, see you as a resource that they want to bring over to the U.S. that could help um, the company or your clients, depending on which kind of company you're working in. I think that that is really helpful. So once you show them, you know, that your work has value, your work is quality work, and you can actually become an asset uh, to them uh, here while working in the U.S., I think um, that's really helpful. And the other the other um, recommendation uh, or advice I would have for people is, depending on where you're coming from, maybe, you know, you know English or you don't know English, so maybe brush up a little bit on your communication skills uh, and just, you know, especially the business communication skills. So that is really helpful. Uh, and third, I would say is just be flexible. So if you do get a chance to move here, uh, the work culture can be very different. Uh, it's a different environment, which could be intimidating or not, depending on your personality. So I would say just just be flexible to learn a new work culture, uh, you know. So you came to to do consulting. What personality type or who would you recommend consulting to as a career? Hmm, That's an interesting question. <laughs> Um, I think, so consulting is, you know, we joke, we used to joke around in consulting, uh, with my, my peers back, back in my consulting days that it's a very type A profession. So from a work standpoint, you know, you need to be very type A, <laughs> uh, you need to have structured thinking, you need to be a critical thinker, very organized, because typically the problems that you're, um, dealing with in consulting, they're very vague, right? They're not as specifically defined. So you need to be able to think through a weight problem, think about what what could be the specific solutions, how do you organize it, how do you do top-down thinking uh, to be able to break down the problem into smaller problems and build that back up. So I think that that critical thinking piece is really important, just being organized in your thinking, following step one and step two and then step three. And, you know, secondly, I'd say having good communication skills, right? Um, because in consulting, you're dealing a lot with people and you're dealing a lot with different people, right? It's not that you're working as part of the same team for years and years, but here literally one project could be anywhere from two weeks to three months or, you know, which which, which is short. So over the course of your career, you'll have to deal with a lot of different personality types. So just being able to read people better, just being agile, thinking on your feet, those kind of behaviors uh, need to be exhibited as well and um uh, and yeah i mean <clears throat> just being uh, just being flexible right because again comes back to you you'll be put into different environments um you'll need to be able to ramp up really quickly like learn really quickly so people who are really good at learning things very quickly i think um those people are well suited to do consulting because you have to move really fast so you can't you can't afford to be slower than your client you had a lot of education in your career. What is the benefit? How did that play into your success? So I think my engineering education, and I compare myself to my peers and where I am right now, people come from different backgrounds, right? So more diversity is, is, is always welcome. But I think for me personally, um, where I started to learn uh, thinking from a structural perspective and structuring my thinking is basically engineering, right? Because everything is very process-defined. 
when you're studying for engineering, everything is very process based. You need there are algorithms and, and software um, that you need to know step one to through ten. So I think that kind of helped organize my thinking and how do I put ideas on paper? How do I communicate those ideas out to clients when I'm talking to them? But the other big place, I'd say MBA teaches you a lot of uh, people skills. Um, you know, I would say an MBA, if, if you're not thinking of doing an MBA, I would say do it just to get that um, experience or, you know, psychological perspective on how people think and how to navigate big groups, uh, how to identify various personality types that are going to help you versus hurt you in your endeavors that you want. So I think that is really good. The other thing is um, the networking piece. So join, you know, do an MBA for the networking piece and getting to know your peers because today you may be a part of your the same classroom <laughs> with your with your peers but 10 years 20 years down the line you will observe and that's what happens that your peers are going to be spread throughout the world and in different roles so you know from a network standpoint if tomorrow you are asked to lead a project that is totally outside of your domain but your peer from B school somewhere in the world is, has already done it. I think that that also proves to be helpful. So I would say, I would say, um, education helps uh, from a domain perspective and structuring your thinking, and from a content perspective. But there are all these other benefits as well to education. And having said that, I feel that most of your learning will happen on the job. Uh, you'll be thrust into different environments, different situations, and you'll have to learn to make the best of it. Um, you know, ask for help when you need it. That's what your team and mentors are there for. But that's what will give you the most real world experience. What are some lessons that you've learned about managing and analyzing data? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, and I can speak to it from my own personal experience, because over, over the eight years that I did consulting, I may have worked with about 20 different clients, 20 different, 20, 30 different projects. So if I have to kind of assimilate all my uh, learnings from data and analysis into, you know, six or seven key bullets, I would say, first and foremostly, use data as a tool, right? Data is never an end or data analysis should never be considered as an end in itself. It's just a means to get to an end. So what is the end? So I think first and foremost, you should know what, what is the question or the questions that you're trying to answer with the help of data and view data as a tool. Um, because, um, you know, and work backwards from there. So uh, you have a high level problem statement, break it down into, into sub problem statements and figure out, okay, to get to this answer, I need to do this kind of analysis and to do this kind of analysis, this is the data I need. This is the time frame of the data that should be there. And th these are the fields that I need in data. So you always should work backwards because otherwise you are just going to get caught in a storm of data and you're you know, going to keep churning on it. And there's no end to doing that. The, the second thing that I've learned is thinking top down, right? As I was mentioning, look at the bigger picture problem uh, that you're trying to solve and break it down. And... In today's world, I think a lot of data is available. Uh, so pick and choose wisely. Uh, data is, you know, depending on where you're working and if you're working with a different client, data is stored in different pockets and different silos. And you just have to know what is that analysis to get the answer that you're looking for? What is that kind of analysis 
20% of your work will give you 80% of what you're looking for. So I think that kind of thinking before you start delving into data analysis upfront is, is very important and essential if you want to be successful with data analysis. Um, the third thing I would say is, yes, there can be creativity uh, in data analysis as well. And if you ask me how, just one example is, you know, a lot of times you'll have situations where data will be missing, right? So you'll have to learn to work around it because you cannot halt or stop your data analysis. So you will need to understand, you need to use some kind of assumptions. And how do you do that? Like, for example, in my case, the product that we were launching was new, right? And we wanted to understand how do consumers, our patients in our case, consume this medicine, right? And the product didn't launch. So we didn't have any real world data. So what we did was to get a consumption curve, we took the competitor analogs that were available. So, you know, there is some level of creativity involved where you have to think through creative solutions as to if data is missing, how do you get the most credible data and uh, that could, you know, contribute to more credible assumptions in your, in your model. Um, the fourth thing I would say is um, validate your findings always. So depending on, so let's say validate your findings from a back, using back of the envelope calculation. So what do I mean by that? It means that as an analyst, you are going to be, you know, heads down into Excel or whatever tool you're using, and you'll be doing modeling, and you'll come up with your answer. You'll use probably 10 different variables and, you know, very complex modeling and, and come up with the right answer. But the people that you're presenting it to, so let's say it's the leadership that you're presenting um, to, it should make sense to them, right? So once you have the answer in your model, whatever that answer may be, you need to be able to look at back of the envelope calculation and say, hey, is it making sense or not? If I multiply a price of $25 by 100 products, I should be getting an answer which is in the thousands and not in the millions, right? So just being able to validate that is helpful. And uh, so I think that's that's mostly related to data analysis. Uh, you need to be credible with your assumptions, right? Uh, because the credibility of your model is dependent on the credibility of your assumptions. If your assumptions are not uh, credible enough, you've not done your research there, I think the model becomes garbage in, garbage out, which we never want. Uh, the other big big skill, which is you know related to data analysis, but not really just data analysis, is the storytelling part of it. So you may be the best analyst in the world. You you may have come up with the best Excel model. You have the right answer, but again, you need to know your audience. And in order for that analysis to be useful to your audience, let's say it's the leadership you're presenting to you or your boss that you're presenting to, you need to make it work for them. Meaning you need to let them know what's the so what, right? So that storytelling skill is very important. So being able to think through, and this is, I think, one of the most important skills I ended up learning in consulting through working with several clients. Uh, you have the data, you have the answers, and how do you present it uh, so that it flows in the form of a story, but at the same time, it's relevant for your audience and the data is able to tell them, okay, this is the so what. So if I'm coming up with this answer, this is how you can use it because that is the piece that they'll be looking for and the answers they'll be looking for. So I think you need to be able to put yourself in your uh, audience's shoes and see what answers they will be looking for or might be looking for. Use your best guess and present your data in such a way that it's relevant to them.
So talking about analytics and learning the skills, what are some career tracks that you can go down uh, with an analytics skill set? Yeah, so I think um, in today's world, I think anyone who is or has done data analysis of any kind or has that skill, there's a lot of demand for that, right? Because there are very few people who can really interpret the data, clean the data, analyze it, assimilate findings, and then storytell, right? So it's a very, very unique skill set to have. Uh, And the more you can hone that skill set by practicing and putting that into use, I think it's very, very helpful. And the reason I say that when you ask about career tracks is because once you have that skill, I think you can just branch out into various different tracks depending on where you want to go. So I think number one would be obviously if you want to stay in analytics, then you just continue to stay in analytics and, you know, just express your love for analytics in that way. And you can just continue to rise vertically in your, wherever you're working, right? If it's a company you're working in or anywhere. So let's say the second option could be if you're working in the industry as an analyst and if you want to move to consulting, again, this is a skill set which is very valuable in consulting. You can do assignments like forecasting and consulting, you know, and consulting is very, very big on using objective data and analysis to make a point and to drive and provide recommendations. So I think it's a very good natural fit if you're good at data analysis to venture into consulting. So that's the second one, I'd say. Um, Third one, again, if you're in a company that offers data science and if you're interested in more advanced kind of data analysis and have those that interest and that um, you, you can always learn that skill set of doing machine learning and machine learning models, learning artificial intelligence and doing predictive analytics. So that's the more advanced sphere if you're interested in coding and that kind of thing, um, because that is also becoming very big in today's world. Fourth, I would say uh, a natural uh, adjacent function for analytics would be market research, right? So if you if you wanna if you're interested in analytics but you want to experience the other side of uh, you know being able to talk to your clients, doing qualitative research and qualitative analytics from coming out from research, that could also be a very good area to explore. Um, and then the other would of course be brand. <laughs> which is how I transitioned from analytics to brand. So in analytics, while you're making recommendations, uh, looking at data, you know, crunching numbers, coming up with recommendations, on the brand side, what you get to do is marketing side, you actually get to take those recommendations and then implement them and execute them into the market, which was one of the biggest drivers for me to go into brand because I actually wanted to implement my suggestions and recommendations and see how they actually perform in the market. And then the last one, big one that comes to mind, of course, there could be many others, but I think is if you want to be on the commercial side, like doing marketing tool support, what does that mean? So for example, I, let's say I'm working on an email campaign, right? Sending out emails to doctors. So the strategy and the creative will be determined by me. However, there's a whole technical team in our company, which we call as center analytics, or we call consumer ex- or customer experience, excuse me. They're responsible for optimizing the email strategy. So what does that mean? So they will do subject line testing and say, okay, let's do A-B testing uh, and see which subject line performs better before we send out this email. 
they'll figure out what time of day works best to send out these emails, what day of the week works best. So, you know, those kind of things, they all happen in the background, but there's a team doing that. So if you're interested in working at the intersection of, you know, tools that are being used by marketing um, and tweaking strategy from the back end, which will help optimize strategy, I think that's also one area that, that can be explored. Yeah, I, I'm curious, in your own role, what to what degree do you still use analytics versus, um, m- I guess, more like strategy and management? Yeah, so I think in my current role, I still do use analytics because, um, as I was mentioning in my previous role where I was working in, in data analytics, I was producing those recommendations. Now I am the consumer of the data and recommendations. So needless to say, if I have to consume that information, I have to understand what is going into it, what variables are included versus excluded, being able to interpret that data and, uh, you know, being able to use that to tweak my strategy. The other place where I use it is really studying the impact of my campaigns and looking at the data. Like I look at data, like the website dashboard or I look at email performance that's coming in. What are the open rates? What are the click-through rates uh, for social media? How how many impressions did we get? How many click-through rates? Are we performing um, as per our goals or not? So I think analytics still plays like a big role here. Although I'm not analyzing data myself and not creating models, I think I'm on the other end where I'm consuming the data that was analyzed and then using it to further further my strategy. Do you create a strategy for your product for the following year? Uh, yes, I think. Uh, and that's so this is the first year where we've just launched our product, as I was saying, this year. So this year is more uh, about creating awareness of this product because this is ours is a new product. There are some competitors that have already been around in this market uh, of AS, ankylosing spondylitis. So... This year, our goal is to create awareness in the market, to tell the doctors how our brand is different, um, and also have them engage with the brand. And then every year, so now I'm looking at what metrics are coming in, how are our campaigns performing, and then the following year, we do tactical planning every year. So let's say in the following year, my goal is going to be to look at, okay, how can I still are all of our doctors aware or are we satisfied with that or awareness should still be a goal? Um, are we engaging with the right doctors? Uh, what kind of strategy optimization needs to happen for the next year? So there's a cycle that the business follows and we call it uh, strategic planning and tactical planning. So every year you look at what's working well, what is not, what new information do you have? And um, based on that, revise your strategy. So for example, I'll have to decide what channels are working versus what are not, depending on the goal that we have next year. And if there are channels that are not working, we we reduce or eliminate spend in those channels and then instead focus on the channels that are working or if there's something innovative and new that we want to try in some channels, we do that. So that's just one example. You had mentioned that you had worked in forecasting previously. Can you explain kind of how forecasting works? Yes. So during my forecasting, and I'll, I'll talk to my experience in the industry here as, as a company, because, um, you know, 
that's more around how pharma does, big pharma does forecasting, and I can speak to my experience here. So what we used to do, my goal was, or my job was to look at patient level data. And these are patients who are either new or entering the market. They've never consumed our advanced drugs. So our company makes advanced drugs, right, for these rare conditions. So my job was to look at how many new patients are coming in, how many existing patients we have, and then use some sort of a consumption curve to estimate how many scripts that's going to translate to. And then every script has a monetary value associated with it. So we would understand, okay, based on new patients when they come in over the course of 10 years, this is how they consume the drug. And if there are existing patients for whom the therapy is working, this drug is working, this is how they consume. We run patient flow models and we convert those to TRX. And that in turn determines the uh, potential revenue um, that, that could, that could the potential sales that, that could be driven by the product. So we call it the patient flow modeling. And of course, uh, I explained it in a very simplistic manner, uh, but that's essentially what we were doing. But there was a lot of data and a lot of vendor support that was going in because getting some of these assumptions is not as easy especially when you're launching a new product in the market, right? Because you don't have any data right now. You just have to take assumptions from what you see with the competitors or how you've seen previous launches. So you need to be creative around that. So as a first step, you create these patient flow models. And there's something we used to do called triangulation. As I was mentioning, always validate your results. So the way we used to do triangulation is by running a reverse patient flow model. So what does that mean? So we were translating patient starts to scripts to revenue. The other side of it, which is a reverse patient flow model, we would get estimates from the finance forecasting team. They would let us know, okay, based on the scripts that we've seen for competitors, we expect these many scripts to be sold. We should run something called a reverse patient flow model where we said, okay, if these many scripts, finance is telling us that these many scripts um, should be forecasted, if you reverse the model, use the consumption curves as we did, what is the number of patients, new patients that we need and the existing patients that we have? And is that making sense? So you always run a patient flow model in the forward direction, going from patient to TRX, and then a reverse patient flow model going from scripts or revenue back to patients to see if it's triangulating, right? So we used to do that exercise a lot. And um, this used to happen on a monthly basis. So every, so there, are three, there, there, there were three parts to this, right? So the first one was long-range planning. So every year we used to say, okay, if we look at the long-range plan horizon, which is at 10 years, next 10 years from now, um, how would we perform and how would the scripts play out? The next is annual plan. So if you just specifically look at the next year, how would the monthly scripts, patients, revenue look like? That's a more shorter term planning. And then every month we would revise this annual plan looking at, okay, we assumed over the next year we're going to make sell 100 units, for example, but the last month sales were not as much as we had forecasted. As a result, what does that cascade into? What does that mean for the next year? What does that mean for the next five years, right? So that, that used to happen every month. That's how the process works. But then we had a long-range planning cycle once a year and then an annual plan cycle once a year. Then 
some other considerations that go into forecasting um, are competitor launches, right? So if you're doing long-range planning and if you know that there's going to be either one or two new competitors who are going to launch, and this is information you get from your competitive intelligence team, so every, everyone has to work in sync, uh, they, they kind of have kind of estimates saying, okay, based on what we have heard about this product that is being launched by a competitor, this is how much sales they can get. So once you get that competitor information, you have to factor that in and put that, layer that on top of what you already have in your forecasting model. And if you also know a competitor strategy saying, okay, this is an existing competitor, but they're going to do something new with their product. Maybe they're changing their product formulation. So if their product is an injection, maybe they're coming up with injections that are less painful or that have to be less frequently injected over the course of the year. So you kind of have to factor in assumptions based on that as well. So if the competitor does this, how is that going to change the market? Is that going to change the market? Is that going to cannibalize our sales? So all those assumptions have to be factored around competitors. The fourth thing um, is FDA decisions. So of course, FDA, uh, based on, you know, so doctors prescribe um, based on the safety of a drug and efficacy, how efficacious or it is, like how well it works, and then the safety. So in our case, what happened was when the drug launched in the market, due to a competitor study, um, the FDA ruled that this drug class was not safe. So the drug class that our drug belongs to, Rinvoq, they, they said that, oh, because the competitor couldn't prove safety, we're going to rule this whole drug class as a little less safe for, for people, right? So that had impact on our assumptions as well. Because once the FDA gives that uh, kind of a decision, let's say, that impacts our sales as well. Because doctors uh, kind of are more guarded, more conscious. So marketing has to do a lot more work there. But, but as a result, that has to be factored into forecasting as well. The other big thing I'd say is COVID. I think that, expect, that kind of impacted a lot of companies and uh, we were also not immune. So when COVID happened uh, back in March of 2020, we were forced to evaluate the impact of that on our drugs because our drugs are for people who have immunological conditions like rheumatology. You know, it's an autoimmune disease. And COVID does impact your immune system. So, you know, we were like, okay, if someone has COVID, are they going to stop taking our drug? If yes, how long are they going to stop taking it for? Will their doctors prescribe them something else? So, you know, those kind of assumptions had to go in. We also had to, have to, we also had to factor assumptions around vaccination, right? So you have to look at the FDA, you have to regulatory environment, what is happening. You have to look at the general environment, what is happening and factor in some assumptions. At that point in March, nobody knew what was going to happen with COVID, right? Nobody knew how the vaccinations were going to roll out, what impact that would have and how, and when the disease would end, but we had to make some assumptions and move forward with our estimates. Um, so yeah, I think that's how it was done. So you just have to start with the basic model and then factor in any complexities. So when you're marketing to doctors, how do you determine the correct frequency to um, to bid with with different tactics? Um. Yeah, so that's that's a good question, you know. So I think in today's world and 
again, I am doing only the digital marketing part of it. And in today's world, the digital ecosystem has to be always on. The other part of this marketing to doctors is through the sales force. A large part of our selling happens through the sales force. And the sales force has a regular cadence and frequency at which they go and meet the doctors in their particular geography, right? So they are responsible for call planning. Maybe they see a doctor every week or every two weeks, depending on the, the number of scripts that doctor writes, number of patients they have. So they have their own planning criteria, right? So that in-person interaction helps a lot. For my part of the job, which is basically surround sound for everything that the, that the sales rep is doing, I think digital has to be always on. And we can't really have a set frequency um, when, you know, things have to be done. So for some platforms, we may have a frequency, like let's say emails, right? We want to make sure that doctors are not getting inundated with emails so much that they fatigue and they start unsubscribing to our emails. But also we want to make sure that we are sending them enough number of emails, um, you know, every month or every two months so that we're at least top of mind. So how do you determine the frequency for such a channel? You look at data that uh, or work that your agency does for you, right? So you ask them, okay, so what is the ideal frequency? What are some of the best practices that you've seen if you want to accomplish this objective? You task your market research team to do that for you. And they come up with these insights which tell you, okay, at minimum, it takes uh, like seven times uh, of a message to be... Um, shared with the doctor the same message for them to start registering it, right? Because they're so pressed for time. They're always so busy and they just quickly check in their emails. They will tell you this is the time of day. This is this is the day of the week. So I think it's very, very um, unique to the channel. And I think that's what is makes it challenging in this whole digital environment. Uh, you need to you need to be able to not fatigue your audience because at any time the control the remote control is in their hands. So at any time they can unsubscribe, they can cancel you out, and and the brand is done. You never want to be in that situation. For some other channels like social media, for example, um, it's really the frequency or even search ads. the The frequency is really determined by the audience, which is the doctors in this case, right? So we advertise on platforms like Facebook. We advertise on some rheumatologist-specific platforms where they're present, which are highly specialized uh, through third-party tactics. And we make sure that whenever the doctors are on social media, we can do a targeted marketing campaign to our doctors where whenever they log on to social media, they'll see our ads a certain number of times. So I think all that, the bidding um, kind of happens at the agency level. And this is where our agency partners help us a lot. But to answer your questions around frequency, I think it really is unique to the channel and depends um, depends on what channel you're using. What's your favorite tactic? Oh, it's so hard. It's like uh, it's like asking your mom if you have uh, <laughs> five babies, who's your favorite baby? That that's so hard. Um, I think um, so. I I don't have a favorite, right? I don't have a favorite. I think all are my favorite, as as a mom would say, but. Um, and the reason I say that is because um, everything has to work in tandem. Everything is your strategy, right? You may use different channels. You may use surround sound to target these doctors wherever they are, but everything has to work in tandem. So the way I create my strategy is really saying, 
what is the overarching message? If this year is all about awareness of the brand, what is the overarching message or one or two key takeaways that we want? And then use that as a messaging hook across 10 different channels or 10 different tactics, right? So I think everything has to, you know, I don't have a favorite tactic because I feel everything has to work well and it's it's like a synchronized dance, right? Or synchronized swimming. So every channel or every tactic has to work well with the other uh, channel or tactic for the whole brand to be successful. Um, but if you're asking me from a, from a, creative standpoint what I love to create I think um, it's obviously videos because they have an interactive component to them so I've done uh, a few Facebook video ads uh, which are which are really interesting another thing that I'm looking forward to is we end up shooting some videos with uh, doctors like in person so I'm kind of looking forward to that as well um, but but you know I think again as, as I said right it my favorite tactic does not matter because it's the ROI that counts. And I know that in this world, the pharma world, doctors are still consuming a lot of print material. Like they read a lot of medical journals and being present there is very important. So you, you just have to be present where your audience is, right? That's that's the key takeaway for me. So you get do you get to go to the movie sets when they film the commercials? Um. I haven't really been a part of that, to be honest with you, but I know some of my colleagues who have. So they do rent out a studio space and they do have these doctors come in. There's a proper like production uh, company that's there. So it's it's pretty fancy, I would say. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like a proper shooting environment uh, where the, the crew comes and they'll have the doctors over and it'll be a proper proper movie shoot for whatever duration, like an ad shoot. And um, I've uh, I've heard that it's very interesting to have that experience. So I'm looking forward to it. I think I know I'm going to make sure that that's part of my strategy in the next year because I'm the one who's who's going to be drafting those tactics. So looking forward to it. Yes. That's awesome. So final question, you have so many campaigns going on at the same time. How do you manage all of uh, the different activity that's going on? Do you have a chief of staff or somebody who helps organize? How, How do you do it? Yeah, so I do have a chief of staff and her name, Darushi. No, I'm just kidding. So uh, it's just me. Uh, it's just me. But I think uh, it's very important to have the support of your agency partners. So I, as a one-person team, cannot make it happen. It's really, I think, you know, if I count the number of people that I'm working with, let's say I'm working with five or six different people from different agencies, those people in turn, Uh, maybe working with, I don't know, like 100 people total combined. So I think a large number of people go into this. Uh, It's a a concerted effort, Uh, although I just meet with like few of my stakeholders. So for us as a company, we're a a very big global company, right? Um, And we have the resources to be able to work with uh, media partners. So I work with a media agency. I work with three or four creative agencies that actually draft creatives for us and these people have all the experience they have the ui ux experience they develop videos they develop print ads they're designers there are a lot of team members like there's a lot of effort across different verticals that goes into this and how i manage this is really for creative i work with three agencies i give them my ideas i tell them this is the message that needs to go in and let them exercise their creative muscles and come back to me and then I provide feedback saying this is 
good by me. This is in accordance with our strategy and how we want to position the brand versus this is not. And then we work together as a team. On the media side of things, I work with a media agency that manages all these channels. They manage third-party tactics. They manage the bidding of uh, ad slots. Uh, so they manage all of that. And we look at, I look at the metrics every month, every quarter to see that we have a particular goal as far as the media is concerned and channels are concerned and are we meeting that ROI? And if you're not meeting that ROI, what can be done better? If you're not getting those many impressions, why are we not getting? So I dig into the root causes and figure out if something different or new can be done. So, you know, it takes a lot of effort. The the other the other side of this, so working with agency partners is very important, but but the other side of this is pharma being such a regulated industry, you need to work with so every asset, every marketing asset that goes out into the market has to be submitted to the FDA. And as a result of that, internally within the company, we have to work a lot with medical and regulatory partners because it's a very rigorous review process. Any claim that we make on our marketing material has to be fair and balanced. What, what does that mean? If you make an efficacy claim saying our product and work is 50% more efficacious uh, than the competitor, as an example, uh, or it's the number one you know, brand and so and so, that needs to be balanced with safety as well. So always when we say fair and balanced in the industry, there's always safety and efficacy that, that needs to be talked about. So as a result of that, as I was mentioning, there's the support of medical and regulatory partners. Every asset that, that I release in the market as a marketer has to be approved by internally by our medical and regulatory functions. Otherwise, it cannot go out into the market. So it's, it's, a, very, uh, it's a very rigorous, time-consuming process, but it also keeps the company um, at a lower risk, right, of uh, not being fair and balanced because the FDA, anytime they can come back to us as a company and say, hey, you made this efficacy claim, but it's not fair and balanced. And hence, we may slap you with a fine, which is what we don't want. So they help us with that as well. Thank you, Arushi. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been really interesting. Yeah, great. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. I think it was uh, great chatting with you and hopefully this was helpful. Awesome. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon.